This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Let's first start off with a good blessing to the good old Lord before I thank you or the staff or Torah Anytime. So here we go. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Sha'akol Nieh Bidvaro. Amen. All righty. We are starting a series, a new series, that is actually quite old. I gave this exact series probably from the years 2012 to the years 2015. So starting about 12 years ago. Uh, it was a phenomenal series in my opinion, and we got a lot of great feedback on it. And I decided to bring it back because it's just such an amazing series. The series is <clears throat> The Mayam Lois on Megillus Esther. Alrighty, yep. We're going back to that. If you remember it from 12 years ago, then tell me if I did a better job this time or last time. I, do, I can tell you I watched the videos. They're all available on Torah anytime. There's 1 through 14, Ma'am Lois and the Megillah. I don't know how many classes it's going to take us this time. Last time it took us 14 classes spread out over four years. Although I can tell you one thing. I was a leaner and uh, more clean-shaven guy back then. That's for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that guy looks good. He should, does he work out? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. okay. So why, let, let me just give you a little bit of my personal background with the Mamloes on the Megillah. When, I have an uncle, his name is Menachem, Rabbi Menachem Feederson, a brilliant man from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, he was studying in a yeshiva and then in a kolel in Lo- Los Angeles called Kerem, somewhere in California, maybe it was in Los Angeles, it was, in, it was called Kerem. And while he was there and he was studying in the kolel, he used to give classes uh, for the women on various topics, including this series that he gave on the Mamloes. Now, he stuck the whole Mamloes on the Megillah into five cassette tapes. Now, I don't know how he did it, because it took me 14 classes. Uh, but I do remember that as a kid, I would just sit there listening to my uncle telling over the story of Megillah's Esther through the lenses of the Mamloes, and just lay there in, in utter fascination. And I, here I was, a, a boy with a very healthy dose of ADHD, but yet you could find me sitting there glued to the ground. I would sometimes just lay on the floor and listen, you know, like lay on the couch and listen, just listen and listen and listen, because it was so fascinating. That was what gave me the impetus to give this class many, many years ago. So, and because it was Bach Shem Soa received, we're going to give it again now. Now, before we get into the Megillah of the Megillah's Esther through the lens of the Mamloes, let's understand the story of the Mamloes. The Mamloes is not a book, it's a compendium of books. And the story, the full story of the Mamloes starts and ends in the same city. A city that is today called Izmir. Yet until recently, until about 100 years ago, until 90 years ago, was called Smyrna. Not that either of them mean anything to you. It's on a, the coast of Turkey, in a very strategic area on the Adriatic Sea. I think it's the Adriatic. In any case, uh, the city of Izmir, the story starts in the city of Izmir in the year 1626, and ends in the city of Izmir in the year 1868, which if you're doing your math, that was a total of 242 years. That's a long time for a series of books to be written, but... It goes way before the books were written. 
In the year 1626, in the city of Izmir, again, which used to be called Smyrna for all of time, there was a man born whose name was Shabtai Tzvi, the most infamous of all false messiahs. When Shabtai Tzvi became, started rabble-rousing, we have to understand what, what Judaism was going through. In the, the mid-1650s, Jews had been almost exclusively beat down for hundreds and hundreds of years all over Europe and all over the Muslim empire. They were desperate for a Messiah. They were living through, many of them were living through abject poverty. They were living through constant ravages of illness and war and of course pogroms and all sorts of anti-Jewish violence, murder, bloodshed. And when this man came about and started claiming that he was a Messiah, it was what everyone was looking for, which may have led for so many people to believe the claims that otherwise would have been held in check. There were actually even rabbinical, uh, rabbinical su- supporters of Shabtai Tzvi. However, there were some rabbis who went and, and visited with him, and they saw him violating some of the most basic commands in halacha, and they said, this guy's out. So it became a raging debate about whether he was a messiah or not. I mean, I was reading that there's a famous book called Memoirs of Gluckel of Hamlin. Gluckel was a Jewish woman. It's an amazing book. There's a Jewish woman who lived in in Germany, I believe, somewhere in Hamlin uh, in the 1600s. And she's just telling you her life story. How she lost her husband, how she married off her kids. And it's such a fascinating read because you get a real window into the eyes of somebody living during that period. Gluckel's father sells everything he has because he's so sure that they're going to move to Israel because Shabtai Tzvi is going to be the Messiah and they're all going to be redeemed. Many, many Jews across Europe and even Arab countries sold their belongings expecting that the Messiah was here now and they were all going to be brought back to Jerusalem. When Shabtai Tzvi was proven to be a false, a false messiah, when he converted to Islam, the blow it dealt to the Jewish community was incomprehensible. Here you have a community that is poor, beaten, hated, despised, going through every kind of suffering possible for centuries. This is a memory of centuries that people were carrying with them of challenge and difficulty, and then they get their hopes lifted up. They were riding high. All over the world, rulers wanted to know what was going on with Shabtai Tzvi, because they were all a bit concerned. Because the Jewish people have always held a very unique place in the world history, that while they all want to kill us, they also begrudgingly recognize that these are not people to be trifled with easily, which we'll get to in the Megillah is the same exact thing. When the Shabtai Tzvi hoax came about, everyone's spirits were lofted so high, and then when he turned out to be false, they were dashed to the deepest levels. Shabtai Tzvi died in the year 1676. So he was only alive for 50 years. But after his death, two major things would happen in the Jewish world. The first was the rise of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov 
was born later. He wasn't born until... Se- he wasn't born, the Baal Shem Tov, in like 1789 or 1798. He was built in the... Sorry, 16. 16. He was born in the end of the 1600s. But he would start a movement to uplift the Jewish souls. Let's remember that in those days, the Jewish soul was beaten down for a number of reasons. Besides all the hate and the violence being visited upon us, most people were not very scholarly. In order to be scholarly, you had to have the money to spend your time studying Torah. Most people didn't have that money. Most people were lucky if they could send their children to Cheder for a couple years, but then their children had to be apprenticed off to a shoemaker, to a blacksmith, to a, 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 you know, a wagon maker, a wheel maker, a barrel maker, a fisherman, a fishmonger. And then they would be apprenticed off, and they would be apprentices for seven years, and then they would go into the trades themselves. And they would try so hard to eke out a living. People were desperately poor. So no one had the money or the ability to send their kids to yeshiva. Which meant that the people who were studying were the elite. The people who were studying Torah were like the elite. Because they were the people who could be, you know, either they were, had patronage, people who were supporting them in study, or they came from wealthier families. And those people, now while Jewish people had a high level of literacy across the board, not many people really knew how to study Torah well and deeply. It was really just the, sort of, called the rabbinical class. And the rabbinical class and the hoi polloi, the regular people, they didn't feel like they had much in common. And the common man could feel very despairing of his place in Judaism. What am I really... How do I count? I'm not a big scholar. I don't know all the Torah. I'm not sitting in the study hall. I'm just a simple Jew. I'm just a, a, I'm just a wagon wheel maker. Trying to bring home a couple kopecks so I can have maybe some fish, maybe some chicken at my Shabbos table. Eating potatoes the rest of the week. I can't give a masterful speech. I can't give a, a, a drusha. I can't write books of responsa, of questions and answers. I can't plumb the depths of the Talmud. At best, I can come to the rabbi's Talmud class on Shabbos because I'm not working on Shabbos. But even then, I can't even understand half of what he's saying. And I fall asleep because I'm exhausted from the week. So not only does the whole world hate me, I don't even see my own value. As a Jew. Comes along the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov was seeking to lift up the spirit of the common man. And what he brought with the message of Hasidus and the message of the inner world is that every single Jew has value beyond comprehension. And how a simple Jew sitting and making wheels, the same wagon wheel maker, if while he's doing it he sings songs of devotion to Hashem, while he's making his wheels, or he says to Tehillim, if he's connected through his divine neshama that reaches to the highest places, he too can be the greatest of Jews. You don't need to be the rabbi who has the fortune to be able to sit and study Torah all day and can understand all the Talmud to be close to Hashem. You can be close to Hashem if you just reach out and, and, and touch Him. And engage with Him. And he swept up the European Jewish world in a fervor known as the Hasidic movement. And of course, it was met with great uh, controversy, 
in the beginning because their actions were often very ecstatic. Like if, if the rabbinic world was purely intellectual, the Hasidic world was almost purely emotional. And when the beginning of anything new comes, there's great controversy and great... Uh, there, was, there was a lot of arguments about what was the true way to serve God. Thankfully today, we've kind of come to a place where we've taken the best of both worlds. Every Lithuanian yeshiva today is saying over Hasidic Torah on Shabbos, and every Hasidic yeshiva is sitting and studying Gemara and Shulchan Aruch. You know, like, so like, it's really become, we've come to a beautiful, beautiful place where both movements have been recognized to be incredibly valid and incredibly crucial. But this movement of Rav Yisrael Baal Shem really lifted up the spirit of the Jews that had been dashed to the floor by the treachery of Shabtai Tzvi. But what about the Jews in the Sephardic world? What about the Jews in the Sephardic world? They also had all their hopes dashed. Shabtai Tzvi was in the Sephardic, he was in Izmir, he was in Smyrna, which was part of the Sephardic world. He was first forced to convert, not to Christianity by some European leader, but forced to convert to Islam by the Pasha of Constantinople, of Istanbul. What happened to all the Sephardic Jews? They were also left in the pits of despair. Until a great rabbi named Rabbi Yaakov Kuli came along. And Rabbi Yaakov Kuli realized, I need to create something that will allow the common Sephardic man to feel connected to the Torah. And you know what we're missing? We're missing scholarship in the Sephardic Jewish language, which was Ladino. The Jews of Europe spoke Yiddish. The Jews of the Sephardic world spoke Ladino, which was also a amalgamation of a bunch of other languages, but it was entirely different from Yiddish. All the scholarly works that were coming out, they were all written in either Hebrew, some were in Aramaic, of course, but the people living, the regular Sephardi common man, didn't speak any of those languages. So what was he to be inspired by? How was he supposed to be connected to God and the Torah? Rav Yaakov Kuli decided to write this incredible work that would roll up into one volume everything, halacha, medrash, the stories, the, the, the Torah, the commentators. And this way he would give his readers access to everything, all the areas of Torah, but all written in their language that they could understand and they could appreciate. And that was what the Mamloes was. The Mamloes was a an incredible work written in Ladino for the common Sephardic man, and it contained in it everything that a Jew was supposed to know. Halacha, Medrash, Torah. I mean, it didn't have in-depth um, Talmudic discourse, but it, it was an incredible, incredible work. Now, Rav Yaakov Kuli, unfortunately, died in the year 1732. Only two years after his first work was published, which was the Mamloes on Genesis, which, by the way, is like five books. Just the Mamloes on Genesis. And by the time he died, he had only mm-hmm. finished the work on Genesis and about two-thirds of Exodus. 
However, it, had, it was received in the Sephardic world with such a thirst and such a desire that when Rav Yaakov Kuli passed away, other Sephardic rabbis decided that they had to pick up the mantle and run with it. And indeed, the Mamloe's library, first it just covered the five books of Moses, but then it started covering the books of Tanakh, the books of the prophets, the books of the, of the, 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 the uh, writings, the Ksuvim. As a matter of fact, I give a class every Tuesday night where we go through the books of the prophets. We've been doing it for years. We started with Shoftim, and then we did Shmuel Aleph, and now we're in Shmuel Bays. <coughs> One of the last works to be written was the work on Esther. By the time the work on Esther gets written, it's hard to believe, but it's already the year 1864. At that time, we go back to Izmir. Izmir, the Jewish community of Izmir, Smyrna, reaches its zenith under the leadership of Rabbi Chaim Palachi, who was born in 1788 and died in 1869. He was constantly working to improve the status of the Jewish people, and he kept pushing for more and more of the Mamloes to be published, and he appointed somebody from his own Bezdin, somebody from his own Jewish court, the Jewish court of Izmir, he appointed somebody named Rabbi Rafael Chia Panchramoli to write the Mamloes on Esther. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, by the way, Panchramoli, you might know, is a city in northern Tuscany. Didn't you know that? You all knew that, of course, though. But, but of course you all knew that. Indeed, many people believe that Rafael Chaim's family was from Pantramoli. He's actually part of a very, very royal Jewish family. Some of them left Pantramoli and made their way through Salonika, through Greece, all the way to Turkey. Some of them stayed behind and became very, very prominent in the city of Pantramoli, but not for their rabbinic stuff, but more for scientific and, and other areas of endeavor. But Rafael Chaim, Rafael Chia Pantramoli who was a young man, about 40 years old, in the court of Rabbi Chaim Palachi, wrote the Mamloes on the Megillah, and it was one of the final books to be written, and finally, the entire Mamloes was printed as one big, massive compendium in the year 1868, one year before Rabbi Chaim Palachi dies, and that's how the story of the Mamloes starts in Izmir, in the year 1626, with the birth of Shabtai Tzvi, and ends in Izmir in the year 1868, when the final Mamloes volume is put together and it is all printed as one compendium. Fascinating little background. <laughs> now, when the Mamloes on the Megillah came out, it was so incredibly popular that it's, it's almost impossible to find a single remaining copy of the first edition printed in 1864. Because it was so popular, every single one of the books was just read until it fell apart. It's amazing. Uh, now, the person who translated the Mamloes, who also is an amazing character in, in American Jewish history, is Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Rabbi Arya Kaplan was a genius beyond brilliant. Uh, he lived in Brooklyn, and he passed away at a young age. I think it was like 56, maybe. He passed away pretty young um, in, in, in Brooklyn, and he actually, he, he writes in his foreword that he thanks his wife, because writing this, this compendium, he was an expert, one of the last final real, real experts on the language of Ladino, right? 
And he wrote this book with, uh, he, he writes in the forward, he wrote this book with nine children hanging around at home. So he gives a lot of credit to his wife, Toby. And he wrote that he, he, he believes he found the only remaining copy, at least in America, of their first edition print of the Mamloes and the Megillah, which he found through a benefactor from the uh, Sephardic community whose name was Mr. Lewis N. Levy. And that is the story of the Mamloes on the Megillah. Okay, so this book is one that comes with incredible uh, pedigree and story. And now, let's get some background. Now that we got the background of the Mamloes... So let's go through. We got the background on me. Why am I doing this? Because my uncle taught this and I was fascinated by it as a kid. So much that I could listen to it for hours and hours and hours. Then I gave it a couple years ago, 10 years ago. Now I'm giving it again. The background of the Mamloes we just heard. Now let's get some background on the Megillah. Real quick, was Shabtai Tzvi a Talmud Yudah He was. Shabtai Tzvi was a Talmud he, he did not actually, he, he, he didn't have patience much for actually sitting and studying of Talmud. But he, he was a bright man. He was conversant in Jewish law. Um, but he liked to study more uh, the Kabbalah. Which, by the way, is, is part of the problem when people study mysticism without being grounded in the actual Torah. The mysticism, the Kabbalah, is the, the Torah's Hanister, the hidden Torah, which cannot, cannot be comprehended properly unless one has a full grounding in the revealed Torah, and whenever people study the hidden Torah without a grounding in the revealed Torah, it creates warped situations from Shabtai Tzvi all the way down to a certain Jewish singer, a certain non-Jewish singer who calls herself Esther. If you know what I'm talking about, if you know, you know. But that's what happens when you study the secret part of Torah without having grounding in the, in the real Torah. I don't know the total number of contributors. That's a good question. I know that it was multiple. I don't know. Is it 10, 15? I don't, I don't know the total answer. Yeah, because it was over a number of years. Over 100 years, yeah. So definitely it was a lot of contributors. Okay. Now let's get some background on the story of Megillus Esther. Okay? <coughs> the Jewish people had a terrible, terrible year. In the year 3338 of the Jewish counting, which would be about 423 years BCE. Now, the reality is most people will tell you, when was the first temple destroyed? Most people will tell you 586. Here's what says 423. There is a number, there's a little bit more than 150 years missing in the Jewish calendar. We could do an entire class about that, and maybe one day we will. But there's this really bizarre situation. I'm not going to get into it today. But there's the 150 missing years on the Jewish calendar. It's, it's not that they were missing. On the Jewish calendar, we actually can count them all. It's, it's, it's the secular calendar that ends up trying to make a, a leapfrog backward, backwardation to make things work. But whatever it is, there's missing years. Anyway, but we're going to go with the numbers that the Mam Lowe is, is quoting over here. So in the year 3338 in the Jewish calendar, which was 423 before the common era, or before the counting errors, <laughs> BCE, <clears throat> the first base on Mikdash was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Nebuchadnezzar was the Russia, the wicked king of Babylon, 
And the Jewish people, they can't believe it. They're seeing their temple destroyed. And things have not been going well for them for a while. About 130 years before, the, a king called Sancheirev came and exiled 10 of the 12 tribes. All that was left was really two and a half tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and part of the tribe of Levi. All that was left was two and a half tribes. But their hope was we still have our temple. Hopefully someday everyone will come back to this temple and we'll all get rebuilt. But now the temple is destroyed. The only glimmer of hope the Jewish people had was that there was a prophet. The prophet's name was Jeremiah. And for decades and decades and decades, he had been prophesizing that the Jewish people needed to get back in line with God's vision for the world or terrible things would happen. And he predicted everything. And they ignored him. And he begged and he prayed and he begged and he begged and they mocked him and they didn't listen to him. And eventually, he ended up being 100% right. Now, while that would not be enough to give the Jews any sense of consolation, okay, he was right, but now we're all destroyed. There were a few prophecies that he had said that gave them a glimmer of hope. Let's read them inside right now. The first one is from Yermia, Perak, Chafhei, Pasuk, Yud Aleph, Yud Beis. Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This entire land will become a desolate ruin. And all this nation, the Jewish people, will end up serving the kings of Babylon for 70 years. But when the end of 70 years comes, I will remember, I will take my, uh, my revenge. I will... I will consider you and keep my promise, says the good Lord, and I will punish them for their sins. I will remember unto the king of Bavel and all that nation, says the Lord, for all their sins. That's one prophecy. Another prophecy was in Jeremiah 29.10. Yermio Chavtes Yud. For so spake the Lord. Spake the word? Okay. okay. For so has the Lord spoken. <laughs> For thus God says, after 70 years have been completed to Babylon, I will consider you. And I will keep for you my good promise to bring you back to this place. So while the Jews were in terrible straits, their temple had been destroyed, their last glimmer of hope was gone, the only thing shining for them was that the same prophet who had said all this was going to happen and who had predicted the entire destruction of the temple word for word also said that after 70 years and he made it in more than one prophecy that after 70 years it would change. The biggest problem was trying to understand when do those 70 years start? Okay, because there were many stages to the destruction of the temple. Four distinct stages that it might have been, the 70 years might have started from. Stage number one, the year 3319. That's the year, that's 442 BCE. That's the year that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king 
defeats Yehoiakim, the king of Yerushalayim, and he now has Israel under his thumb. Israel is now what we call a vassal state. Israel is part of the Babylonian Empire. That could have been the first time. Seventy years from when Babylonia conquers Israel. Could be it was from two years later, in the year 3321, when Yirmiya made the actual prophecy saying that in 70 years, God will remember you and take you out. Could be it was 70 years from the prophecy. In the year 3327, Nebuchadnezzar came to Yerushalayim and exiled King Yechonia and all the greatest, the cream of the crop of the Jewish society. He took all the best and the brightest. Interestingly enough, he took Mordechai at that time. When we get introduced to Mordechai, we're told who Mordechai is. Right? So Mordechai is one of the people that was exiled by Nebuchadnezzar with the exile of King Yechania. Because again, at that time they took the cream of the crop and Mordechai was from the leading sages of the time. They took him. They took the, leading, the greatest rabbis. They took all the leading statesmen. They took the cream of the crop. So that was the year 3327. And then the final year would have been the year 3338, which was the year of the destruction of the temple. So when did those 70 years start? The Jews weren't the only people concerned about this. The non-Jews were concerned too, because they knew that the Jewish God was not one to be trifled with. They knew the stories of Egypt. You have to remember, 2,000 years ago, there was no one doubting in the world, the stories of the exodus from Egypt, of the ten plagues. Only thousands of years later do people come along and you start having the rise of atheists who by now there have been thousands of years removed from the events. You start having historical revisionists coming along and saying, oh, this never happened. But in the year 430 BCE, everyone knew what the Jewish God had done. So everyone was, they may have had their other gods, but they were quite, you know, it's like sleep with one eye open. Sleep with one eye open, because what's going to happen if the Jewish God comes back? And there is this prophecy of 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar continues his reign for 26 years after the destruction of the temple. At one point in his, in his, <laughs> towards the end of his reign, he goes stark raving mad, and he starts crawling on the ground, acting like an animal. He goes down, and he goes down in total degradation, which all the more so makes the other kings wary of trying to be take that throne, that that curse of the Jewish God lightly. Twenty three years afterwards, Belshazzar. Another Babylonian king assumes the reins. And we're going to see soon that they make a calculation about when the 70 years was supposed to be over. And they make a miscalculation. And because of that, they make a party. And their reign ends that night. Which is fascinating, because remember, there was four different times that the 70 years could have started. 
The first time was from the beginning of the reign of Babylonia. The Babylonians make a party celebrating that the 70 years have passed, and Belshazzar also had an incredible military victory, and he makes this big party, and he's using the temple vessels, and a hand comes out. (laughs) Everyone's getting drunk, everyone's having a good time, he's got his concubines drinking with him, according to one opinion in the Talmud, he even had some dogs, he had his favorite dogs, and he used to have his dogs sit at the table, the royal table, drinking out of golden, drinking wine out of golden vessels next to him. So they're having a, a mighty good time when suddenly a hand comes out and writes something in Aramaic, but it's written in Hebrew letters. Mene mene tekalofarsin. Which he doesn't know what that means, but immediately the room sobers up. And when they finally discover what it means, it means counted, counted, weighed and scattered, which Daniel explains to Belshazzar means God's been counting all your sins and weighing them, and now your kingdom is about to be scattered. We'll get into exactly what happened later in a few months, maybe in a couple minutes, but that night he's overrun and his kingdom is destroyed. So 70 years to the day, from when the Babylonian kingdom started, the Babylonian kingdom does end. It's not the 70 years that the Jewish people go back, but fascinatingly, there is some level of that prophecy taking place that in 70 years, Babylonian's empire is over, and it's now run over by the Persians and the Medes. Okay. The Jews thrived in uh, Yes and no. They, under, under the Babylonians, they were doing better. Under the Persians, they were doing even much worse. We got from that. That the Gemara doesn't come out until thousands of years later. Seriously, I'm saying the, the, the Gemara comes out about about a thousand years after the and story of. He had Jews into palace. He did. And he fed them kosher food. That is true, but that doesn't mean the Jews were treated well. People used the Jews as their jesters, not as their jesters, as their advisors, because they were very smart. But it doesn't mean the average Jew was treated well. Okay, now. Interestingly enough, the next king to come to light would be someone named... Uh, the, there, was, there was Daryavesh and Koresh. They were actually father-in-law and, and son-in-law. And Daryavesh takes over next. And he's the one who... He and his forces, along with Koresh and their forces, they destroy the Babylonian rule that night. And when... Daryavesh dies, Koresh takes over, and Koresh is afraid of that prophecy. So almost immediately after he takes over as ruler, he says that the Jews should start rebuilding the temple and that he'll even pay for it. And that occurs exactly 70 years after the prophecy of 70 years. So, so far we're tracking right on. Okay, we're tracking right on. The first... There was four possible times the 70-year prophecy would have started from. The beginning of the Babylonian rule, the time the prophecy was given, the time that the first exile occurred, and the time that the final destruction of the first temple occurred. 70 years after the first... 70 years after the first... uh, Nebuchadnezzar took throne and took over Judea and, and Israel as a vassal state... Seventy years later, the Babylonian Empire is destroyed. Seventy years after the prophecy was given, Koresh, King Cyrus, 
makes the order to start rebuilding the temple. However, he ends up dying, and his son Achashverosh takes over, and Achashverosh halts the building of the temple. Which brings us to the book of Esther. Okay, now that's the, pre- the prelude to the book of Esther. Now just, the man always says, the book of Esther has to be written like a Torah scroll. It has to be written with the same type of ink, same type of parchment. have to have lines. It's called sirtut, lines embossed in the parchment to make sure you write it straight. Uh, all the laws that apply to a Sefer Torah generally apply to a, a Megillus Esther. Uh, the sheets are supposed to be sewn together with thread made from animal veins or tendons, meaning it's supposed to all be done from a kosher animal. And a Megillah should ideally have a handle of silver or gold, since the sages said, we're supposed to make the Torah and the mitzvahs beautiful. You could use a handle made out of wood, but ideally one should make a precious metal. The Megillah is interestingly divided into 17 partios. Even though we have it split up into 10 chapters, that was done at a later date, and this, the Mamloes follows the 17 partios in the Megillah, not the way we have our chapters split up. Just, I thought that's interesting. Okay, and now at least we'll cover the first, the first verse. I don't know if we're going to cover the whole first verse today. Let's not push it. But at least let's try to cover the first verse in the Megillah of Achashverosh. Hmm. Of Esther. It was in the days of Achashverosh. He was Achashverosh who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 lands. The purpose of this Sefer, the purpose of this incredible Megillah, is to publicize the miracle that Hashem did in the days of Achashverosh, and therefore begins by describing his kingdom. Achashverosh was one of the kings of a gullus known as Paras Umadai, Persia and Media. He came to power in the year 3392, also 369 BCE, and he inherited the throne from his father, Koresh, when the Jews were reaching their lowest point. That we said before. Achashverosh was actually very pleased when he sees these 70-year markers going by with no redemption. And the reason why he's going to make the feast is to celebrate the fact that the Jews were not redeemed by God. And the Jews, unfortunately, went to that celebration, which was considered an incredible act of treason, to go to a party that celebrates the downfall of the Jewish God and to party there and enjoy yourselves. That was considered to be an act of treason too low, and that brings upon them the evil decree of Haman. The word vayahi always indicates suffering. Anytime a, a parsha or a megillah or a, a, a sefer, a book in the Tanakh, starts with the word vayehi, it indicates that paranus is coming. Evil and, and sadness is coming. Why? The word vayehi just starts with vay, which is, in Hebrew, the word vay is woe. Vayehi, and it was woe. So that's the first reason. Also, interestingly, the word yehi means it should be. Like, yehi shalom b'chelech. There should be peace in your abode. Yehi, it should be. The word vayehi means and it was. That vav takes it from the future tense, yehi, it should be, to the past tense, 
which is exactly what happens whenever people are stricken with misfortune, what do they say? If only we could have it like it was. Right? They always want to go back to what was previously. So that's an ex- why the word vayihi indicates some kind of destruction. Now, the Babylonian exile was not as bad as it could have been. At first, the Jews were supposed to go to the Roman exile. The Roman exile should have happened first. But Hashem had mercy on them because the, the Romans were such vicious people that Hashem had mercy on them and He sent them to Babylonia instead. And the Babylonians, while they were still terrible, if you read the accounts of the destruction of the first temple and the genocide that occurred, you would know that the Babylonians were no, not exactly known for their kindness, but they were considered a more soft people and they were not... The Jews were given over to the, the, uh, the Babylonian exile. However... Because the Jews were not seeking to get back so fast, and they got too comfortable in Babylonia, God brought upon them the Persians. And the Persians are described in the Talmud as like bears. They're described hairy like bears, corpulent like bears, they eat and drink like bears, and they're cruel like bears. So the Persians were extremely cruel and made all kinds of threatening decrees against the Jewish people. When Achashverosh came to rule... He made the cruelty even worse. And that's the Vayahi. For starters, he, he ordered that the building of the temple that his father had started be stopped. But let's get some background on Achashverosh. Who was he? There's actually a, a dispute in the Talmud about who he was. And we're going to get to that. But let's go with the first opinion and understand the provenance of King Achashverosh. There was a Persian king by the name of Astyages. Astyages had no sons. He only had a daughter. And the princess's name was Mandane. Mandane was going to be his, his heir. However, she was seduced by one of the people in the court, a simple person in the court, and she became pregnant. <clears throat> when the father found out that his daughter had been seduced by a simple lowly courtier and became pregnant, he killed the courtier, he exiled his daughter, and he decreed that when his grandson would be born, that he'd be left on the top of a mountain to die alone. Indeed, his daughter eventually gave birth, they took the baby, and they left him on the top of the mountain to, be die, to, to die alone. Miraculously, there was a, a large female dog who saw this little baby human and took mercy on him and allowed this little baby to suckle from her. And this kid grew up in the mountains and ended up becoming a fierce and powerful warrior and started eventually attracting a, 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 a group of bandits around him. He became so powerful that when his, they started calling him, they, they called him Koresh, because the word in Persian, Koresh, means dog. He was like a dog man. But he wore that with pride. When the king, Astyages, found out that his grandson was actually alive and well, and thriving with a group of large armed bandits getting larger by the day, Astyages sent a, a group of soldiers to kill his grandson, 
But his grandson ended up killing that group of soldiers and then marched in the capital and killed his grandfather. And now, Koresh, the dogman, inherits the throne of Persia. At that time, there was another king named Daryavesh. Daryavesh was the king of Madai. We have Paras and Madai. Paras is Persia. Madai is Media, Medes. When Daryavesh heard about this powerful king, this dogman who was come to the throne and was such an incredibly powerful person, he wants to make an alliance with him. So Daryavesh says, I want you to marry my daughter. I want you, Koresh, the dogman, to marry my daughter. And we'll align ourselves and become allies. Which they do. And out of that union of Daryavesh's daughter and Koresh is a child born named Achashverosh. Now, that was... Daryavesh only had one child, the daughter who married Koresh. So when Daryavesh dies, Koresh inherits the now combined kingdoms of Persia and Media, of Paras and Madai. And eventually, Achashverosh will inherit that from his father Koresh. Now, the name Achashverosh is only found in the Megillah, although we have, we have found coins, ironically. There are ancient coins being found still today in the areas of Iran and Iraq that have the word Achashverosh on it. So in case anyone's not sure if the story is true, the, go find those coins that were minted thousands of years ago that have Achashverosh on it. But most people call him Atarshachta, um, but that was a generic title given to any Persian king, the same way you would have a pharaoh for a, uh, a, a king in Egypt or a Caesar for a king in Rome. <laughs> the Jews called him Achashverosh because the word chash means to, have, to hurt, and rosh is your head, and it was like, we have Chashverosh. We're getting constant headaches trying to figure out what we have to do to survive in this wicked king's kingdom. Okay, we will... So far we've got some background on Achashverosh, and we'll continue here next week. I'm glad we got through at least half of the first verse, but next week we'll get through a few more verses for sure. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.